Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Well, it's certainly a strange feeling to be celebrating the Le Mans 24 hours this late in the summer. And the uh, most famous sports car race in the world takes place on the 20th and 21st of August in 2021. So we're taking the opportunity to use this Insight Special, which is a favourite event for most of us, just to look at all sorts of things to do with Le Mans. We're joined on this episode by a race fan through and through. A man who uh, turned his hobby into a very successful profession, I think. And uh, and that is David Ingram. Uh, David, welcome. I know Thank you very much. Lots, I think you've got lots of experiences, some, <laughs> some of which you can talk about and some <laughs> of which you can't. Well, we'll see how we go. <laughs> some of which he doesn't want to, Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, probably, that's probably true. He's blocked out some of those memories. <laughs> As, uh, as you've probably gathered, uh, dear listener, I'm also joined by Jim Roller and Joe Bradley, of course, uh, and they're both steeped in Le Mans over the years. Jim, you you love the place, don't you? Uh, yes. I mean, that's a love is an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's. Uh... It's kind of the center of the racing universe for me. Everybody, you know, coming from America where we like to have uh, the over-exaggeration, the world center of racing and yeah, uh, yeah. the greatest spectacle in auto racing and everything else. Um, the greatest auto race in the world will always, for me, be the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And it is a special occasion for me every time I'm able to go and I'm closing in on my 25th. So hopefully not this year, but hopefully next nope. year we'll get that milestone. Bravo. That's uh, that's a, a good one to have. And uh, that's, you know, that's, that's Tales in comparison to guys like you, but Hey, I'm working on it. You know, I, I worked something out the other day, which is that with my father going to Le Mans when I was a kid, and I'll talk about that a bit later. Um, and my brother and I all went to Le Mans, that there have been, between the three of us, 77 visits to Le Mans. That's pretty good. <laughs> Let's start by just having a, a quick look at the track, about what it is that, that's there. And the the first race ever at, at Le Mans was nowhere near the track we held today because... That was in 1906, believe it or not, and was a, a circuit on public roads, as they all were, on a mammoth 64-mile lap, anti-clockwise, to the east of the city of Le Mans. But they then built another one, or used another one, which utilised part of the N138, which we all know as the Mulsan Strait. But... It wasn't until 1923 that the good people of Le Mans and, I have to say, the the fast-growing French motor industry wanted to create a sort of race that 
reflected what the motor industry was all about and a boost to tourism as well. Now, in those early days, the start-finish line was where it is today. Um, but the road carried straight on down through the site of what is now the uh, the museum, if, if you're familiar with that layout, and on up through that road, which is still there, you know, that you can you can still go and drive that. It's probably not the most salubrious part of town, but then in those days it was all fields. And that started from the start finish line a three mile straight right up into town to Pontlier and just north of what is now the Ring Road and then really, really tight bend which went round a cafe, which is still there, and then a back back down the uh, the full six mile Multan Strait. None of your Namby Pamby four and a bit miles then. It was a six mile dash and uh, then down through to Indianapolis, Arnage, and through those early daunting sweeps of White House, all of which you can drive today. And there's a few roundabouts in there now. Oh, sorry, traffic circles for our colonial cousins, which, uh, <laughs> which weren't there in period. But I think the other thing, and, and I, I know you'll all have, have looked at this in the past, the pictures you see are those cars on pretty much dirt roads. And, and mm. I mean, I, I think it's, it's incredible to think, Jim, you've, you've seen those pictures, I know, of, of those cars right on a, on a rally stage. Yes, and it's uh, almost a throwback to American dirt track racing when you see some of the old footage that is out there that you can find on YouTube and other places of the cars being thrown sideways in a Scandinavian flick almost uh, with the rear end hung out and just absolute stunning. Of course, always riding with a mechanic (laughs) and all of that stuff as they did back in the 20s. So, um, yeah, those uh, those are iconic images that, are uh, speak volumes about the history and the oh the the sheer uh man versus machine man versus you know yeah the elements wasn't it elements thank you yeah exactly, yeah yeah exactly. and 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 the things there's, there's a story there actually guys um if you if you put this into context of the time that all of this was going on and you go back to 1895. Now, this is not long after you've removed the horses from in front of the carriage and replaced it with an internal combustion engine. And we were the first motorists. This area of France where we all go to is where the very birth of Grand Prix racing took place. And it started with the the Bordeaux-Paris or the Paris-Bordeaux-Paris races at the turn of the last century. And that evolved in terms of the previous to the last century, actually. That's how old I am. Um, but it was, it was, it, so when, when you took 100 and what? Yeah. yeah well, um, when you talk about, you know, conf, confining it then to a 64 mile circuit and then just evolving that uh, to be more manageable, I would think. But it was, it was a test for the uh, motor manufacturers of endurance and durability over that period of 24 hours. 
but also so it became it became a test bed. Yeah. But also interesting, you mentioned the track surface, which was basically dirt, and it was then paved in 1925. It became a test bed for the manufacturers who make road surfaces, who, who manufacturers of tarmac. They used it as a test bed to test the surfaces that were then going to be developed into our everyday roads. So it was. It really is where, where the automobile and you know, if you think about the road systems we have worldwide now, this area of France where we all go, this is where it all started. It's incredible. It's it's amazing. David, did did that period appeal to you? Well, it did. Yeah, I mean, I think my fascination in motorsport has been primarily about around endurance events. So endurance events like rallying, well, particularly how rallying used to be um and uh sports car racing and and it occurs to me with um you know what joe has just been saying you know the 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 early races were on gravel roads i mean much like rallying is still today some of the time and this 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 whole um environment of um test beds for manufacturers for component manufacturers for for road service manufacturers um, and the element of teamwork in all this is is what really fascinates me and has always done. Yeah, I, th- I think it is about that teamwork thing, and we see that to this very day, don't we? Yeah. They they cut off that hairpin um, in in just a, a couple of years into the event because it was very very tight, and they they built they just cut off the last hundred and fifty yards of the very north of the circuit and they built a road which they call imaginatively enough the Rudu Circuit and you can still go and drive down there now it's brilliant that you can do that it's um, it's now a suburban road full of bungalows but it, it's it's nonetheless where the circuit used to be and not when then, I drive it it's not <laughs> <laughs> Then you will go down, in in modern terms, you'd go down past McDonald's and Carrefour and um, and Buffalo Grill and all those kind of places, because that was all part of the circuit, albeit about a tenth of the width that it is these days, and that you go straight down towards Mulsanne Corner. But that changed in 1932, um, because the... The people of Le Mans were very happy with the tourist revenue, but less happy with the disruption and the road closures. Does that bring any ring any bells for anybody? Because <laughs> something's never changed. No, indeed. <laughs> so the organisers bought this piece of land, which was in the middle of the, the north end of the circuit, and they built what we as English speakers will call the S's. And... That, that that really cut off that, that whole bit and joined up now to the now shortened street at Tete Rouge. And it stayed like that, really, from 1932 to 1967. There was a bit of um, work done after the 1955 disaster, which um, moved the pits further back from the racetrack um, and changed the, the line of that Dunlop curve. But nonetheless, they were they, they were minor things, I and mean, it was really the ACO just being worried about the uh, the speed of cars going past the pits. 
so they were they were doing that they they sorted it out and then nothing really much happened until 1967 when the ford chicane was built and again if you're a motor racing um anorak archaeologist call it what you will um you can still find the porsche uh, the, the ford chicane underneath the grandstand um which is the, the one at that current day chicane that's all still there but uh porsche cars were built in 1972 and that there was all sorts of stuff there but in all honesty it was it was overdue to happen white house was incredibly dangerous it's claimed the lives of quite a lot of drivers over the years and uh, was a, a regular happening from from those things so yeah it was no bad thing that that happened although all the all the uh, all the letters in the auto car and things said they ruined the flow of the circuit and modern day safety on a classic road course never happened you know but but it did uh I, 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 I find it remarkable just just sorry to interrupt there paul that dr- driving down through that white house section now to try and conceive how um something like a porsche 917 would have come clattering <laughs> through there that's just beyond belief. It really is. It's it is. a head shaker, isn't it? I mean, and I think probably one of the saddest days of my life was the year that we showed up and they had built that wall mm-hmm. on that road that blocked off so you could no longer see the White House. Yeah. And yeah. that was so disappointing to me because, you know, it was that was that was part of your annual pilgrimage to <laughs> the home church was yeah. to drive down that street and uh drive down past uh, the white house and normally someone in the car would say take him at white house he doesn't like it there you know <laughs> which is the line from the iconic movie um but yeah it was uh yeah that was a sad day understandable I, as paul says and i totally agree but yeah when you start building walls so you can't see the old artifacts that's that's mm-hmm. sad I, I, I mean, you say about the nine one sevens, David, and uh, that I I did hear the story very much from uh, from the horse's mouth of when they were filming the uh, the Le Mans movie, and that it was um, it was Derek Bell and um, Richard Atwood, I think, who were were out there and. They had to film a flat-out piece, one in a Ferrari, one in a Porsche, uh, down through White House, and that when they got to the right-hand bit of White House, there was a cameraman lying face down on the apex filming. So mm-hmm. sort of four feet from the from the cars, which were pretty much flat chat, and that uh, they, they f- finished the bit that – the, the two drivers went storming up to John Sturgis, the director, and said, there's a bloody cameraman out there and, and he's he's lying four feet from us and it's a complete, you know, it's just, just not on. We're professional race drivers. And, and with that, into the porter cabin, walked Steve McQueen with the camera. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he'd, uh, he'd been doing the bit. So, yeah, something's, something's never changed. But we we lost that. Terre Rouge was changed in 79, um, but that was really just to do with them building the new 
the new dual, dual carriageway road. Um, but of course, the the big thing after they changed Mulsanne a little bit because of the uh, roundabout was the the chicanes, which was like the end of the world for an awful lot of people, and I think probably me included. How, how did we all feel about that? Mm. Sad, really. It was, um, I mean, it was the Mulsanne Strait was no longer the Mulsanne Strait. And, um, you know, it was that special bit of Le Mans. Drivers used to talk about having the opportunity almost to relax, for goodness sake, because <laughs> they could uh, wiggle their hands and fingers and toes a bit. And just, you know, because they're only going 200 odd miles an hour, um, you know, it was something which was a part of the of the whole event. And bringing in the two chicanes brought in extra concentration extra work for the drivers in a different way and yeah i mean i suppose it, uh, evolution you know is is inevitable but again it was one of the classic parts of the circuit which was taken away and um, yeah for for many quite a sad thing yeah i think we we all kind of felt that way at the time we we then saw another significant change in 2002 with the the sweepers that went the the far side of the Dunlop Bridge, um, and Joe, did that work for you? Yeah, no, that that has never worked <laughs> for me because I, um, I, I could I can take the Mulsanne canes. Yeah, I could I totally understand why there was a need for that. Um, having been there and had uh, been present at the race, not that I had anything to do with it, but you know that it was a it was a responsible for a few fatalities and you, you really were in the, the lap of the gods and you were relying mm. on, you know, bits of bolts and bits of metal staying together at for 3.7 miles, I think it was, wasn't it? Six kilometres. Um, but that when they took when they put those sweepers under the Dunlop Bridge down towards the S's and then reprofiled the S's, that iconic view of the racetrack with the cars going through the Dunlop curve and then out of sight under the Dunlop Bridge, over the brow, and then down towards the S's, and the run down to the S's with the sun coming up in the background on, on Sunday morning. That when they when they took that away, I, I lost some a little bit. I don't, I don't know what exactly it lost for me, but it lost something. Um, yeah, and, 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 and I think just, uh, doesn't, just doesn't fit right. I think. I think when they moved the fun fair, it also changed it. Oh, absolutely, mm. yeah. I mean, the fun fair's worth a podcast of its own, isn't it? Really? <laughs> yeah. no, no, I've been no, experienced it in so many ways. <laughs> no, I think we, I think that would we be... like our jobs. We, we... <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be ninety minutes of silence. I think. Um, <laughs> Joe, the um, obviously one of the most glamorous parts of those early days of the Le Mans Twenty Four Hour Race was. The Bentley boys and and everything that went with that and and that's something I know that you're you're interested in. Um, it, it, domination is a is a massive part of motorsport, isn't it? And we go through periods of domination. We see it in Formula One. We've seen it certainly at Le Mans. Um, Mr. Ingram sat with us today. Is responsible and was part of quite a lot of that. Um, and we saw that from the very outset, you know, mustn't forget that when this race started in 1923, it was a 72 hour race over three years. 
it was it was not a 24-hour race. This was a, a test of endurance and durability over three consecutive years. Um, however, to simplify it, the second running of the 24 hours, 1924, was the first of the Bentley victories. And then we had this period of domination that I've, I've mentioned from 27 through to 1930, um, where we had uh, the Bentley evolving and becoming the car to beat. And a certain Wolf Bernardo was the man to beat for three consecutive runnings of the event. And it mirrors so much the modern iteration of the, of the event and, and the class that we saw Bentley pouring in as a manufacturer pouring in the works backing, the uh, innovation that was coming in with regards to, you know, getting the motors to run faster, little bits of uh, innovation to get the airflow through the car. Um, it, was a, it was a halcyon period at the very forefront. And, it, and it, it can easily be forgotten because of the very rich history of just how significant that period it, the, that initial decade of the, of the event was when we saw Bentley being the car to beat, and hey, it was British, <laughs> and, and it established Bentley's credentials, which which live to this day. I mean, it it, it kind mm. of put them on the map to the wider audience, and uh, you know that still resonates now. It's still so very powerful, and we can we still see Bentley four and a half liters at historic festivals, pounding round racetracks, being driven as they were intended, to this very day. That, that's, that's how well-built those cars were. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and how well-rebuilt they were as well, I think. Yes. But, uh, but, but I think, yeah, you're right. And, and, David, you're absolutely spot on there that if you look at some of the model names that Bentley have used over the year, the you know, Bentley Mulsanne, the Bentley Arnage, um, they're, they're milking it <laughs> to the ultimate, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, yeah. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. Jim, your uh, your first visit to Le Mans was when? Well, I think I'm probably the Johnny Come Lately, typical American, the Johnny Come Lately to this group. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, my first uh, appearance at Le Mans was 1988 uh, at the behest of my friends at the Four Letter Network. And um, yeah, I... I predate the chicanes. I, it will always be one of my lasting memories um, was being able to go out, <clears throat> pardon me, as a credentialed member of the media uh, and stand at the guardrail at the kink on the Mulsanne straightaway and see those cars come by and just the, the wake that they would leave and the, and the resonance of the sound of the car through the trees as it came down the the, the straightaway and then went away from you. It was almost a, a wah, 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 wah as it, as, it, as it went away. And that was just, that sent a chill down my spine that w has stayed with me to this day. I get, get <laughs> yeah. chill bumps just talking about it. Uh, but yeah, 1988, the the, uh, the win by Jaguar and um, uh, is quite controversially um uh, by many of our, my English friends, I uh, witnessed the TWR guys cheating, and um, but they did win. And um, yeah, I was in the pits when they were taking the uh, the fuel out of the the uh, the dump tanks. The, not the dump tanks, but the overflow tanks would go uh, uh, 
the, the car would come in and it would be filled up and then the overflow tank would go into the into the uh, get refed into the uh, holding tank for the leading car yeah. funny how that worked <laughs> and uh, yeah they were they were so- quite subtle about it and they pulled it off but there is if you uh, can do some sleuthing and access the ESPN the vast ESPN library of videotape you will find a uh, uh, a beta cam videotape in there that has video evidence of said of said skullduggery mm. <laughs> the thought of somebody cheating to win the mines it pales the, uh, does it not but, um, <laughs> the uh, Kevin Jeanette's story of uh, of the 79 winner was uh, was very much along the same lines wasn't it oh very much so very, very much so uh, and then um I was, yeah, with the sandwiches. They sent the baguettes out with the belts in them so that, uh, so that uh, the Whittington, uh, it was uh, Don Whittington could uh, fix the the belts and get the car back to the pits and they went on to win the race. But, uh, and then, and then luckily, I, I it, you, know, you talk about uh, Christmas and birthdays and everything all wrapped into one holiday. Um, so you go your first Le Mans and it is, uh, Jaguar winning for the first time in in forever, and then you get to go back in 1989, and Mercedes wins for the first time in, since since uh, the tragedy in in 1955 when when they gave up motorsport completely. So, how could you not be hooked after those two uh, those two events? I was I was very lucky, very very lucky. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it was a a halcyon time, obviously. And David. Um... Were you were you always a, a follower of Le Mans? Yeah, yeah, for for as far back as I can remember, and I I first grabbed the opportunity in 1982, uh, as um, <clears throat> many of my chums did, um, with a Page and Moy tour, and of course that coincided with the arrival of the Porsche 956 and the the Group C era, um, and I think the the, the most um, I suppose daunting memory I have of that time was after having stayed up some of the night, not all of the night, um, but then back into the Page and Moy coach for uh, a couple of hours kip and then waking up in the morning and you're only just halfway through the race. This is this is just amazing. And it was staggering for me how such highly strung cars could continue to race for 24 hours okay they didn't race faultlessly and that's where the the teams came in and uh, worked wonders repairing them mending them straightening them out patching them back up again um but i just the whole thing for me was was such a spectacle and and you know i felt the emotion from day one it was um something i knew that that was it i was hooked and uh, i would be there forevermore do you remember when uh, when all of us used to, to wake up at whatever time it would be, depending on what time we got to bed, and you'd go out and buy a newspaper because on the back page would be all the retirements yes. overnight. Yes. Remember that? Yep. And then yep, indeed. there yep. would be the whole of the back page would be all the entries, and then there would be a cross through all the ones that you re- had retired because that was the, that was the, the level of the information we got. Well, that's it? that's yeah. it. I mean, looking back now, I, I just mm. – I'm – I don't know how we used to know what was going on in the race. You you would position yourself from time to time near one of the circuit loudspeakers, and if you were lucky, you coincided with uh, 
Bob Constanduris or somebody telling you what the uh, the running order was. But I mean, really, you know, Le Mans without Radio Le Mans, crikey, it just doesn't yeah. matter anything about it. it uh, did it really matter? Did it, did, did it really matter knowing yeah. what yeah. was happening? Uh, uh, to I, be honest, I was, no, it didn't at the time yeah. because I didn't know what the alternative was. It was it was an amazing spectacle, and yeah. I enjoyed every second of it. And yeah. I suppose as time went on, you know, that spectacle just got better and better. Yeah, and I think that it sort of went through the the whole thing of of the the evolution of of information. Yes, completely. Yeah, and that what we had was that, yeah, we didn't know any better and that we listened to Bob Constantinus, you're right, um, and that you you got home and on Thursday you bought Autosport and you yep. said, oh, that's what happened to the number <laughs> 35. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You can relive it all again. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I've still got all those Autosports. <laughs> Joe, what about you? 1981, um, I had no interest... Um, in endurance racing. I was a single-seater guy. I was a trainee mechanic, and I was um, kind of pestering people in paddocks, mainly a croft, and washing wheels, and helping refuel cars and stuff and uh, at club events. And a mate of mine who I worked with, we decided to go and find out what this Le Mans business was all about, and this, you know, this long-distance racing. So we drove his pretty much brand it was a 1980 mgb gt he was he was very frugal with his uh, he would never get his round in and uh, the the brand new mgb gt was the fruit of that of him being tight in the pub um so we drove it down and um we we bivouacked it at rouen and when i said bivouacked we slept in the car in one of the service halls which i only found out sort of much later how dangerous that actually was but there you go um we survived um got to the track went trackside and i have some very strong memories of of the event uh very few memories of the actual cars and who took part and um i have lots of memories about the fairground like we said that's for a podcast later on that was quite a thing i remember sitting there it must have been about three o'clock in the morning my 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 mate had gone back to the car to sleep under it it was so hot oh the abiding memory of 1981 by the way was the heat it was intense and i just have this memory just sitting there at the start barely able to lift your head up it was just searingly hot um, but then again, 3 a.m. it must have been. I was at the Forge Cane. I was sat on top of a barrier. Now, I, I'm pretty sure this wasn't the concrete trackside barrier. It can't be, possibly be. But then again, it was 1981, so it might well have been. Um, and when I tell you what I'm about to tell you, you I, I might be right. I was sat there on top of the barrier uh, with my legs trackside of the barrier. There must have been, that must have been a secondary barrier. I couldn't possibly have been trackside. And I just remember watching the cars go through the Ford Chicane and just, you know, this constant stream of, and probably wondering, why are they doing this? <laughs> this is madness. <laughs> this is madness. The sort of racing I was involved in at the time was over after 25 minutes. And it was like, yeah, let's, uh, you know, that was good. Um, but the biggest memory I've got is, and I, if I close my eyes and think about it, I am there. At the end of the race, the crowd began to filter through and onto the track. So, of course we did. We went with them. <laughs> and there we were on the side of the track, just coming out of the Forge Chicane. 
And Derek Bell brought the 936, the Jules livery car, which was apparently leading, had no idea who was leading <laughs> up until that point. Um, he never actually crossed the finish line. Um, as the car came out the Forge Chicane, it just entered this sea of people that just opened up around it. And the crush was so great that I couldn't stop myself, but I had to step onto the car. And when I say step onto the car, I kind of put a foot onto the car and, and went to go up just to get out of the crush. And I was immediately dragged off by what I perceived to be uh, a German mechanic because he was shouting and swearing in German at me. Um, and the biggest thing was I was so sunburned that he absolutely, ah, the agony of him driving me <laughs> off of the sunburn. So I was like, I was like, you know, I could have touched Derek Bell's helmet. Now, at the, um, at the Amelia Island live stream we did a couple of years ago, guys, I had the beautiful uh, uh, opportunity to run this by Derek. And we did, I don't know if you remember, but we did the interview uh, yeah. on, on the live stream. And I, I, you know, explained what I've just described to you guys. And I turned to Derek and I said, do you remember me? And guess what he said? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. He did remember not crossing the line. He did remember there was a track invasion. Um, but, but he didn't remember Joe Bradley in his red T-shirt, and he's probably very, very short shorts, as it was 1981. <laughs> I might have even had a firm at that time. Yeah, oh, that's <laughs> a visual that I just, yeah. No, I, I, I'm, <laughs> with, I'm with you, Jim. I've, I've, gone, I've gone all unnecessary all of a sudden. I'm sure Derek just blocked it out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It wasn't that he didn't see it. He just blocked it out. My, my, my first sort of involvement with Le Mans was – I suppose when I was about four, because um, my my uncle, technically my great uncle, was uh, was a big wig in Smith Industries, and that by then they were not only making all the instruments for what was still a successful British car industry in the in the fifties, but uh, they also owned a number of other companies as well, like Blue Coal Antifreeze. Remember that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and uh, Lodge and KLG spark plugs and KLG was a big sponsor at Le Mans, and they used to have a, a presence there. And my my dad used to he was a hanger on, and he went from 1956 and right up until 65. Uh, and consequently, he uh, he used to bring us back, you know, the the Salido model of the DBR1 or whatever else it might be. And so I was kind of hooked, really, from, from there on. And it's quite strange to think of it now that it wasn't until 1979 that I actually got to go. And I did that with my brother. And we we decided that we were going to go with almost no planning at all. I, I was running a, um, a Datsun 240Z at the time, and as there were going to be three of us going, that precluded my car. So we we went in Mark's company um, Fiat Mirafiori Estate 1.6, which, uh, which was enjoyable, I'm sure. But I think one of the things is that for all of us that went in those early years, it was an expedition, wasn't it? Yes. You know, yeah. You know, that, that you didn't you didn't get on the motorway and just drive there. That 
if you're going into Calais, it was a five five hour run, at least. Easily, yes, yeah. Uh, and and that you you get there. So you know you were you were almost like sort of Scott of the Antarctic or um or something like that because you were pressing on through this this strange world. And I think because of that, one of the things that <laughs> that was strange was we were going to a motor race and we were going for three or four days. So the back of the Fiat was full of tins of baked beans, <laughs> bacon, sausages, eggs, white sliced bread, because it never occurred to any of us that you could buy any of this. <laughs> so, so we, you know, we stayed there, parked at the circuit and stayed there. We, we drove, we drove down on the Thursday because again, Great shortage of information. I'm sure we could have done a lot better than we did. But we drove down on Thursday and got to the north of Le Mans. And you know all those signs they have on the on the lamp posts that say garage fair and, and etc. Yeah. And we we said, where where do we go? And that I said, I seem to remember Dad saying something about parking in in garage fair. So we went. Got no no bookings, no tickets, no nothing, and arrived and found a space in what was then the the Comping Day Tribune, and we pitched our tent on what would now be the gravel trap at the Dunlop chicane, um, because obviously the the road was straight in 1979, went straight under the bridge, and that we were incredibly close to all of that. The thing that I I remember probably more more than about the racing, which was a fantastic race, but but was just the experience that the campsite there were no pitches, there were no there were no bits that you you, you had a space and you had to fit your tent and your car into. You just went and you could take as much or as little space as you wanted to, and that there were dreadful mixed showers which were unbelievably horrible um and that the um the urinals had to be experienced to be believed uh the the washing facilities there was one on the campsite there was one long like a like a very long bath probably a bath that was 20 feet long with taps all the way along it, and you just stood there in a row and you washed or shaved or did whatever you were going to do. And I'm not sure, David, Joe, when you were there, did they have that really complicated ticket system? Yes. <laughs> yes? Remember that? Well, when- I've had quite a few complicated ticket systems over the years <laughs> where you, you had to, you had to um, when you left the circuit, you had to have a, a another ticket given to you unless you could produce that ticket along with your original ticket when you tried to get back into the circuit you had to buy another ticket (laughs) (laughs) you sort of walked away at the end of the of the event (laughs) full of tickets (laughs) yeah because with the with the campsite which was as i say just at the the foot of the um of the dunlop bridge what they had was that there was a premium ticket that got you into everything, the start line side of the Dunlop Bridge, 
right up towards towards White House. And then there was a, a sort of proletariat ticket that gave you access to the to the um, the fun fair and to the asses and up towards Tete Rouge. So in order to get out of the campsite, I remember this to this day, you will go out of the campsite at the bottom of the of the Dunlop Bridge, they would give you a ticket to say that you were going out of the premium area. You'd then walk over the Dunlop Bridge. You'd then give them back the ticket, but then you'd have to get another ticket to say that you're going back into the premium area. So, yeah, like you say, David, that you'd end up with a pocket full of tickets and you'd have the foggiest idea <laughs> what any of them were. But it was, yeah, it was an interesting time. And, yeah, looking back on it, um, terribly, terribly basic. But yeah. that made it quite fun. I think and, so. I, I mean, to be honest, that, some of the, your description of the campsites, some of them haven't changed much. <laughs> Sadly true. Yeah, I, I do remember probably in the mid-80s saying to a friend of mine who I bumped into at Le Mans, I said, where are you camped? And he said, we're over there in Sharpville. <laughs> which I, I always thought was particularly apt but um yeah it was it was a happy times happy times and i suppose you know we've all got our own our own favorite time our own best time but that's those sort of 50s and 60s of post-war years jim they, they were special years weren't they they really were. And that's when the race kind of for the public at large, I suppose, came into uh, came into prominence for at least everybody that is of our generation, certainly, because after the war, things got started. There was uh, some media coverage in the 60s. Uh, uh, ABC Sports covered the event in the United States. And then, of course, in 1970, the, the famous movie for, that Steve McQueen did that is the linchpin for for a lot of us, but in the fifties and sixties, there was a, a, it was a wonderful uh, time of post-war resurgence. Uh, of course, in 49, uh, Luigi Canetti, who became the largest uh, American importer of Ferraris and went on to be legendary in the world of Ferrari racing with his North American racing team, Ferrari entries and, and Peter Mitchell Tom, uh, Tom Thompson. Sorry about that. Um, uh, won in 1949. It was the first ever victory for Ferrari. And then through the 50s and 60s, Ferrari and, and through the 50s, Ferrari and Jaguar really were the, were the teams that, that held sway. Ferrari won again in 54. Uh, during the 50s, Jaguar had, uh, I think, six, five victories uh, in, in that span. Uh, Aston Martin, of course, famously in 1959. And it was a time of, um, you know, great, great names. Uh, Duncan Hamilton, uh, Herman Lang, uh, Jean-Louis, uh, Ro- the Rosier brothers um, come, come to mind. Ivor Bulb, one of the great, uh, one of the great uh, British uh, endurance uh, racers who, who has uh, got, uh, there are great backstories uh, about him. Phil Hill in 58, Carol Shelby in 59, of course, with Roy Salvadori in that, in that, uh, in that Aston Martin. And those were, those, those were halcyon times interrupted in 1955 by an event that almost 
led to the undoing of everything. And that was the, the horrible 1955 crash when 80-some spectators were, were killed on drivers left on uh, the, the front straightaway. And that, of course, caused, uh, caused quite, a bit of, uh, quite a bit of angst, caused uh, Mercedes to, to completely pull out of motorsport in 1955, at the end of 1955. They pulled out of the race, kind of marked uh, poor Mike Hawthorne's only uh, Le Mans victory. Yeah, and again, I think there's um, there are so many stories about about that particular day um, that uh, we could we could spend an awful lot of time on that. But those those, those cars, I mean, e- even now when we go to historic events, those cars of the of the the fifties and the sixties were magical cars, weren't they? Absolutely amazing, and I, I think you know for many teams, Jaguar in particular, to drive their race cars down from their factory in Coventry to the race, to Le Mans, race with them, and then drive them back. I mean, that's that's surely what sports car racing is all about. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be nice if that was a requirement now? Well, wow. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't, wouldn't, that be, uh, wouldn't that be fantastic? You, you had, wherever you came from, you had to drive the last 100 miles to the circuit in your race car. Yeah. 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 <laughs> of course... Of course, then the 60s were a Ferrari-Ford show. Ferrari won six times, Ford won four times, and they were the only cars to win from uh, 1960 to 1970. Um, And, of course, there's been movies made and and everything else, and, of course, the great story of Henry Ford wanting to buy Ferrari and then all of the the details of that. In 1967, uh, probably... America's two greatest race car drivers ever, uh, Dan Gurney and A.J. Foyt, uh, claimed victory and started a tradition that, that carries through to today and spraying the champagne. Yeah. So there are um, so many, uh, so many things. And it was also the time when, uh, when Jackie X started to put his stamp on the event. His first victory came in 1969 which was the last uh, nobody in, in a million years thought that the those old Ford GTs could uh, go out and and compete and in fact not only did they compete they provided us with the the closest closest finish in in in, in you know until uh, closest real finish probably ever um uh, in in the fact that it wasn't a stage finish it was uh, uh X versus Hans Hermann uh, at the at the line uh, by a scant eight seconds. Amazing. Joe, Joe, you've um, I know always been a bit of a fan of of Jackie Eakes and mm. that he's he's undoubtedly put his his stamp on the on the place. Memories of Jackie? Um, of course, he he won my first ever visit to Le Mans. Um, my memories of Jackie Hicks are more towards his Formula One career uh, as well, as much as it is his sports car career. Um, you know, that that iconic video that appeared in the Group C era of the in-car 956. Mm-hmm. And you've got that in-car of Derek Bell and then Jackie Hicks going by him and Derek saying, <laughs> you know, oh, the reason he's going so quickly, he hasn't got a camera in his car. Um, you know, that... that <laughs> You know that that kind of epitomizes Jackie X. He had one speed, didn't he? He's such a he was such a class act, and he was such the such a perfect. Remember, we're talking about 
uh, an era of sports car racing and motor racing where, and it's completely reversed now, where endurance racing was all about managing the car, managing the gearbox, managing the engine, not over-revving it, not missing a gear and mm-hmm. managing the car. It wasn't a flat-out sprint. It was a 70% driving uh, effort from the drivers to manage these machines home. Complete reverse. Formula One's now all about managing the tyres at 70%. Uh, and endurance Le, Le Mans uh, sports car racing is all about flat out for 24 hours. It's bizarre, that, isn't it? Um, but he, he is he is the master, and he's such a class act. You know, I had the honour of of meeting him at the uh, at the Amelia Island Concours, standing next to him on the on the show field where all of the cars from his career have been brought and sought out by um, the Concours. And I turned to him, and there he was, uh, standing there with his his uh, his woolen jumper across his shoulders the sleeves you know of course very you know very very continental and i said mr x i couldn't possibly bring myself to call him jackie mr x um this is your life we have before us it'll never happen again he said it'll never happen again this is this is unique this will never be done again it was like quite it, it was quite a joyous moment but sad in exactly the same moment it was a mix of emotions. Fabulous fellow. Yeah. He's a fabulous fellow. I, th- I think for me that you know, there are lots of people doing the rounds of, of historic events one way or another. He is probably not only the, the most self-effacing man that you'll meet, he is probably one of the men who has the least reason to be self-effacing, bearing in mind his achievements. And uh, yeah, he's a fabulous bloke. I absolutely agree. And it's not um, false modesty either. It's no. it is true, honest reflection mm. of the gifts he was given in his life. Uh, he started out as a guy who wanted to be a gardener. Yes. Can, can you imagine? <laughs> they would have but been some would have pretty been plants, I'm sure. But boy, <laughs> are, are we blessed that uh, he he. he 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 chose uh, driving instead of gardening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, David, do those those cars of the fifties and sixties um, sort of work for you in terms of seeing them on the racetrack these days? Oh, very much so, very much so. I was um, very fortunate to um, sidle up to Adrian Hamilton at um, quite an early Goodwood Festival press day some years ago, and um, managed to talk him into letting me sit alongside him driving the C-type Jaguar that his father won in, um, took to victory in 1953. And um, the 50s and 60s sports cars are something which I can really identify with. I think I used to like you, David. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sure if you talk to him nicely, he'll let you (laughs) go in the same. He'll he'll treat treat you just as well. He's, he's, He's a lovely bloke, but I think, you know, he... He was, he was fairly sort of pragmatic about his dad's history. I mean, his dad was a complete rogue. Well, Duncan, uh, his book is um, is sort of part fiction and part fact, I'm sure. Um, but that that whole um, epoch of kind of you know exotic sports cars as they were at the time, and and these bounders who were driving them. Um, I mean, it's it's every schoolboy's dream, really. <laughs> You're right, and and that. That period, Jim, of the 50s and 60s left a, a lasting impression, didn't it? 
Oh, it it certainly did for for a lot of the reasons that um, that that we that we talked about, and it was the the Ford uh, entry into motorsports. There was all kinds of backdoor deals done in the United States, and this was the first time that one of uh, America's big three admitted that they went racing and and that sort of stuff. You had, um, like I say, that the Jaguar uh, D C and D types. It, it made Jaguar what it is today, uh, as far as its name and and uh, marketing and cash. A and all, all of that. Um, I, and the, one of the things that I really love about uh, historic and vintage car racing today is um, when you do have uh, the D-types and C-types show up at an event and they are being driven by drivers who really know how to drive, just the fact that those cars slide so – that the the, the – uh, the coefficient of friction and things on the top. Th- those cars are in four-wheel drifts at all times <laughs> to be yes. driven fast, and um, I, it's just it's it's amazing to watch them. And I can understand why it would be spellbinding during those times to watch those men and machines do their stuff because it's just it it boggles the imagination. It really does. Now, we can't talk about Le Mans and we can't talk about the history of Le Mans without talking about Group C. And that I know this is something which probably is pretty close to all of our hearts because we're all of an age and that that was a definitive time. Joe, you, you were, you're a great Group C fan. Well, this is the time, the Group C era was when I became more aware of what Le Mans was all about and sports car endurance racing was all about. And it wasn't that far removed from Formula One. You had a, the level of driver ability uh, in the Group C era where, you know, guys that were racing Formula One or had raced Formula One. Um, and and the Group C era was, you know, the hal- is, it the, is it the best period? Is it the halcyon days? Let's just think about this and put it into some form of context. So, Group C started in 1982 and ran till 1993. Uh, I'll come to why it faded away or it was forced away, more likely, uh, uh, in a moment. But prior to Group C, Le Mans was in a little bit of disarray. I mean, the, the, the race that I was at in 81, my first uh, experience, they, they, were, they were gathering cars from, from pretty much anywhere. Any, any kind of sports car or GT car was invited to Le Mans, come and bring it and we'll fit you in somewhere. And there was a, a very eclectic mix. What Group C did for me was made it easier to understand the classes a little bit, perhaps. Um, it was the, a regulation that was governed by a fuel formula. Um, the manufacturers loved that concept of managing an amount of fuel. I know Jim alluded to, to some shenanigans, but then again, it is raising. Um, but it was a fuel formula where you had an amount of fuel that you had to go, uh, that you had to stretch to, to you and use within the 24 hours as fast as you possibly could. Um, and when you think about the... The, the Group C started, or the decade, let's say, the 80s, which is pretty much where Group C was, it started with only three factory teams involved. And yet, you know, by, the, by 1988, before the end of the decade, uh, in the midst of the Group C halcyon days, 
there was 20, 20 full-on factory cars all going for the win. And if you just read them off, Aston Martin, BMW, Ford, Jaguar, Lancia, Mazda, Mercedes-Benz, Nissan, Peugeot, Porsche, and Toyota. There's only Moscovich missing from that list, isn't there? <laughs> Everybody wanted to be part of this. Everybody wanted the, 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 the win on Sunday, sell on Monday, was, was perhaps none more so than the Group C era. And then as we got towards the final stages of Group C, it became too good, didn't it? That was its problem. It was too good. You had you had the Cosworth engines being put into the back of a Jaguar that was effectively a Formula One car with a bodywork, with, with bodywork. The speeds mm-hmm. were phenomenal. The cars looked phenomenal. The Peugeot 905 looked like a spaceship. It went like a spaceship. It was, you know, science fiction. And it was beginning to be a little bit, towards becoming popular with the fans. The fans loved the cars. The cars were not just um, crates that, you know, that were being nursed over 24 hours. It was becoming, it was getting to the point where these cars were very, very fast race cars, were thoroughbred race cars towards the, the, the level of Formula One, but over long distance races, that you know that really was attractive, and it was perhaps that that got the sports car racing the Group C uh, regulations were kind of pushed to, to one side because I think my theory is it became too popular, and it became it became too competitive with Formula One for that confined fan base. Bernie had to kill it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I think there was a there was a time when. Uh, what I've been told is that Bernie wanted to own Group C and to own what is now World Superbikes so that he could have one of those three on television every Sunday afternoon. And that that's why they introduced the sprint races. Do you remember those the, mm-hmm. in the latter mm-hmm. days? Um, yeah. Because that, that worked for TV better than the... The long ones, but no, I think it was a it was a a sad end to a, a great time. And and David, you you must have uh, you must have enjoyed those. Well, it's my my formative years really, as I, as I said, eighty two was my first year at Le Mans, and then the the sub, subsequent um, well, most of the rest of the eighties, I went along as um, part of the late Richard Lloyd's team. Uh, Richard was a mate of mine. I'd got to know him when he ran Audi 80s in the British Saloon Car Championship in 1980. And um, in the beginning of 1983, he bought, or his team bought a a 956 um, sponsored by Canon. And um, they were looking for a tall bloke to help with the refuelling. So (laughs) he uh, asked me if I'd be interested, but knowing, of course, that my enthusiasm meant that if um, if, he, if he wanted me to go along and make the tea, I would have probably gone along and done it. Well, I, I, I did in subsequent years. But um, so from 83, for a, quite a few years, I was on the, the, the fuel bottle, the, the breather bottle on the other side of the, the fuel hose and um, participated in most of the European races when Richard went on to 
um, to compete in the World Championship. I just couldn't get the time off work. So um, I, I had to back out from a, a regular appointment, but I always went along to Le Mans. He always found me something to do. As I say, I was either making tea or sweeping up or helping with the timekeeping. But you know, my, 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 my first 10 years was the Group C era. And, and it was just captivating. It was absolutely fantastic. When, when Richard finally packed up um, in, I think it was 91 was the first race that he didn't go to. Um, I just went along with a couple of mates in a tent and uh, going back to what Joe was saying earlier about the, the, the S's when the S's disappeared. That was one of our favorite spots at the start of the race. We'd sit at the bottom of the S's looking up at the, uh, the, the, the Dunlop bridge and you could see almost the, 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 the exhaust vapors just before you saw the cars coming round on the first lap. And what a, what an amazing location that was to watch the race cars. Listening to the, the differences that the, the Porsches going through the flat six or the Jaguars of the V12 and then the Mercedes V8s, they all sounded different. You could tell what they were before you, before you saw them and hearing them power out to head towards Tete Rouge. Oh, it's, Absolutely magical stuff. Memories there, which I shall never forget. And they and they all look different as well. They weren't designed by a computer like like today. They all look the same. Uh, They all look different, and uh, that was just fantastic. Interesting, you should say about the uh, that that point on the S's there, David, because going back to my first my first visit and and arriving on that Thursday night, that. Obviously, practice was on, qualifying was on, um, and we had no idea. We had no idea what the program was or anything. So we we arrived, we, we got into the campsite, which, as I say, was right next to the circuit, and the, there were cars on track. And so I, I r- rushed up to get out of the campsite, Gave him a ticket, got the pass out, and <laughs> then then did all that malarkey, and got up to the up to the fence on the far side of the Dunlop Bridge, just as Jackie Eeks came past, and you were an awful lot closer to the track in those mm. days than you would be yes. now. And J- Jackie Eeks came past in the nine uh, the nine three six Porsche. Um, the Essex car, do you remember those? Yeah. And that he came past absolutely flat out, um, very felt very, very close. And you know people talk about love at first sight. Mm. That was love at first sight. There was <laughs> that there was no doubt about it. That that was that was my my first experience of a car on track at Le Mans was Jackie Eeks in a Porsche 936. Yeah. Does it get any better than that? <laughs> that does not suck. No, uh, but uh, you know it was it was good good stuff. It was great stuff, and that uh, I think yes, that that side of the track was was magic. Joe, you 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 talk about the the Group C cars and some of those, and we we have our we have our corridors of power game, which is a, a different game again for another day. Mm-hmm. But but favorite Group C car, everybody. Um, I'm going to go for the Peugeot 905. Really? Oh, man. Formula One roots again. Yeah, it is. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the rear end of a 905, it's just got that, you know, single uh, pillar rear wing. 
um, the lines of it, it just looked space age. If you put that on the track now, if you rolled one of them out and called it a hypercar, no one would notice. Everyone would yeah. go, wow, yeah. that's innovative. Mm. True. It's phenomenal. Yeah. David, what, what would be your, your, um, your favourite Group C car? Silk Cup Jaguar for me. The yeah. sound of that V12 engine was just musical. And uh, never never tire of listening to that. Jim? Probably the, the C9 because it was just mm. so fast. And as David said, it was... Uh, uh, it had a different sound. It had that V8, that V8 rumble, and it's just, yeah, it only won once. I mean, the easy answer is the 956, 962, but um, I think yeah. in reality, the, 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 you know, as, as I look through a collection of 143rd scale models, the eye always stops on that one because it's like, <laughs> and plus it was so aerodynamically different than the Porsche at the time mm-hmm. as well, as was the Jaguar. Um. Yeah, the 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 XJRs and and the C9 were uh, were were a departure from from what Porsche had done with the 956 962. So that would that would probably have to be mine. I'm I'm sitting resolutely between the two of you there because uh, <laughs> that the the Silk Cut Jack here is Group C racing as far as I'm concerned. But I think there has been there has been very few. There have been very few more beautiful cars than the Coros sponsored Salva Mercedes mm-hmm. um, in, in that, in that dark blue livery, yep. fabulous looking car. So oh, I, I love the uh, silver ones, but that's, yeah, that's. Yeah. 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 But we, we, we each have our own. Yes, but, tomato, tomato. That worked very well. We each had a different choice. Yes. That was very nice. Usually and interesting. Nobody cool. picked the Mazda, the, the ear, the, the ear <sighs> yeah. damaging. Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. Well, that's that's, probably... that's why I didn't pick it because it. My, <laughs> yeah. my ears still remember it with horror. The historic racing news radio show. We've heard about your your early days in pit lane, David, uh, as the tall guy on the on the fuel filler, and that I know, Joe, that you've had many conversations with David in mm. in pit lane, but I think there's there's quite a few. Audi years stories that uh, that you probably like to to talk about. Oh, well, it, it's it's a period, wasn't it, David? Where we, we're quite embedded with the Audi story, and we were there from the very outset. We were there at Sebring in nineteen ninety nine. Mm-hmm. You know, the the the, um, the inaugural event, the the launch of the of the program, I suppose, mm-hmm. and saw that car from gestation become the dominant force that it was. Um, the 2000s are all about Bentley from the year 2000 all the way to 2008. All right, 2003, it was called a Bentley Speed 8. But when you walked in the garage, it was all the Audi team Yoast guys. <laughs> David will be able to perhaps shed some more light on that. But um, Mark, this day on your calendar, ladies and gentlemen, someone from England has admitted the Bentley was an Audi. I'm not saying that. It was very similar. It was, well, it was, I mean, it was created by the same people and designers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the Audi R8, you know, I'm, I'm going to go ahead here. The Audi R8 for me is still the Audi that I love the most. And it may be because it was the, you know, the first of the Audis. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love the Audi R18. 
I'm a big, I mean, that car looked like it was part of the earth when that went past. Mm. It just was kind of the way the Audi R18 uh, sat. We were there for the first of the diesels, um, the R10 uh, in 2006. Um, For me, we talk about domination being a bad thing. And I I think the saving factor for me with regards to Audi was the fact that it was, yeah, we were dominated by Audi, but the inter-team rivalry was phenomenal. Mm. Yes, I think that's something, uh, you, domination, yes, um, a number of reasons why that was, could have been. I mean, uh, at the beginning, um, 99, there were the BMW, Mercedes, Toyota were there as well. Um, mm. They clearly were frightened off when we arrived, and uh, 2000, uh, you know, we were virtually on our own. But I think the car was designed so well for the circumstances. Gearboxes were always a, a weak link, a potential weak link at Le Mans. Um, and so the guys designed a system whereby the, the whole of the rear end of the car could be changed into three or four minutes. Um, and in some cases, it was changed as a precaution before something went yes. wrong, just to ensure that the car would not fail out on track. So it was a the R8 was a superbly designed car, and and I agree with with Joe that out of all of the Audi sports cars, I think that the R8 is my favourite. It was it was probably arguably the most successful as well after. Mm. Uh, 80 races were campaigned, uh, 63 finished up with a victory. So it was an extraordinarily successful car, very balanced looking. The drivers all loved it. Um, it easy to work on. It just ticked all the boxes. And, um, you know, it was a very, very special time for Audi. And, of course, very, very special time for me. I just happened to be around at the right time. Fabulous. That that modular rear end that brought about an actual regulation change was phenomenal to witness. And I remember at Le Mans seeing that modular rear end. What I mean by that is the gear from from the engine back over, you basically unbolt the gearbox and attached to the gearbox is the, the the floor, the rear suspension. It's all just one unit that basically bolts on or bolts off. And they were, they, that's how they were changing gearboxes. And I remember the car going across the threshold into the garage. I set the stopwatch and f- literally just under four minutes later, the car was being wheeled out and fired up and off it went for under four minutes. And the regulation change that was brought in was that they, they, they had to counter that because like david said um they were preempting a gearbox issue and as quickly as it took to replace brake discs and pads they were changing gearboxes and that was phenomenal engineering that innovative to it to the extreme and the regulator and 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 i suppose manufacturers are looking at that and thinking we can't compete with that we're not going to come to le mans so the ACO changed the reg, and the, the regulation was that you had to finish start uh, finish the race with the same gearbox casing that you started the race with, which meant if you did have an internal gearbox issue, you had to actually dismantle the internals of the gearbox and fix it rather than just change the whole rear unit. Fabulous engineering. Yeah, yeah. And a great yeah. reading of the rules. 
Well, yes, yes exactly. Yes. That's, that's always the way with motorsport, though, isn't it? You know, the, the, the rule makers lay it all down, but the engineers figure out ways of optimizing the interpretation. And that's the term I prefer than cheating. <laughs> no, I Engineering is I a agree. term that I prefer. Um, the other thing that, we, well, you were talking about the domination. I think the other thing that needs to be in, impressed here is the fact that while they won, what, 13 wins over 15 years, mm. there were many of those years where they had, not only was it internal competition, but huge stiff competition yep. from Peugeot. But yes. nobody remembers who finishes second. So, mm. and there were many years where they shot themselves, where Peugeot shot themselves in the foot, and 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 kind of handed things over to Audi. Um, and then, for instance, in in 2010 with the with the uh, R15, that was about the only Audi that, other than the 1999 R8 version, that was about the only Audi that showed up that didn't work. Yes, and they hadn't they hadn't raced. There were budget concerns so they hadn't raced the car they had done a lot of testing and they showed up and the car cavitated and they they were on their back foot from wednesday evening when the first practice happened and they still won the race with mike rockefeller timo bernard and romain dumas so you know it was yes they were dominant but it wasn't a cakewalk by any stretch no 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 true no and i think this this matter of internal competition Dr. Ulrich, I think, was superb at running the team. He ran it kind of like a family. He didn't interfere. He he empowered the managers to manage their team the way they thought best for their team. And two cars, three cars, four cars in, in, in one year that were competing, once the race started, the engineers were running the cars. And there was no... Um, overruling by Dr. Ulrich at all, he would let them run their race. And they were competing as much against each other as by the competitors, the other competitors, the other manufacturers. And, and I think that's, that's, that's got a, a, another bearing on how Dr. Ulrich used to run the team. Um, it, he, he injected humanity into it and his behavior publicly and privately was always very respectable and i think he allowed audi to be successful and dominant in some areas but also without the arrogance that sometimes you'd expect from that sort of performance and credit to him for his his term of of endurance over the years that he was running the the, the, the motorsport division if there ever was a motorsports patriarch, I think probably he would be the picture in the dictionary next to it. The enduring memory I will have of the man is in 2009, after some unbelievably heated battles with the Peugeot guys, where, frankly, the French were doing a lot of name calling and trying to, you know, call out... Uh, every little thing and try to get under the, the skin of the officials and try and turn the tide their way. Who was the first person uh, in the Peugeot garage at the end of the race in 2009 after they claimed their first victory? It was Wolfgang Ulrich. Yep. And it was a heartfelt congratulation. And he even said to, uh, to uh, it may have been to Joe or one of the other Radio Le Mans competitors that this is what Le Mans is all about, that it makes it even better for Audi 
to be able to win in 2010 because yeah. somebody else has won in 20, uh, 2009. Yep, true enough. Yep. Yeah. David, the, um, I'm interested by the Audi UK story and how that mm. came about in terms of a sports car team because that was a, that was a, a purple patch too in, in well, every, yeah. several ways. Well, yes, exactly. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, we used to take guests to Le Mans from, um, from the first uh, entry, well, from 99. We, we took a few guests, a few journalists we hosted, a few VIP customers um and did that for a number of years rented a lounge above the pit so that the um the guests could have a, a good view of things going on and my boss at the time in 2002 said well, you know what could we run our own car here and i'll well <laughs> you know i didn't need much more encouragement the timing was good because um the plan enter a works team from 2003 so uh, there were there was a car available and encouragement available from Audi Sport in Germany. So we um, we we put together a budget that uh, I managed to get signed off, and uh, we we purchased a car and um, sought someone to a team to run it for us. Now, historically, I suppose we would have chosen our good mate Richard Lloyd. But he was very heavily involved with the Bentley program, which was, of course, in its third year. And so we approached Mike Earl, who ran the arena team. They'd run an R8 for Stefan Johansson in Gulf Colors in 2001. So they had familiarity with the car and the systems. And um, we put together a deal to, to do Sebring, just to get some running experience, and, and Le Mans. Um, and, um, I mean, it was obviously very, very exciting. We, we brought loads of guests down. Uh, we'd, um, we'd even, um, brought along, uh, JK and his, his merry band at Jamiroquai to do a, a concert during the race. Uh, and all was going well until two hours into the race and, um, uh, Frank Beeler ran out of fuel, which was um, <laughs> rather distressing. Oh, I is. apologize for laughing. That's well, no, it's, it's, yeah. but there's a, because there's a story. There's a story. Well, there is. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, it's a sort of thing. Well, God, you know, what do we do now? We we had a film crew there doing a documentary about it, a sort of fly on the wall documentary, um, and um, you know, we just, I suppose, never considered that mm. the car wouldn't finish. Right. What happened, right. What happened exactly, David? Was well, it a communication breakdown? It was or? communication breakdown. I mean, Frank yeah. took the rap for it. He took the blame. But, you know, when when you look at and listen to what happened, um, mm. the the I don't think there was enough regular communication to Frank during his in-lap. I mean, right. there's a lot going on, of course, in the cockpit. You know, he's coming up against slower cars. He's He's trying to get you know, a quick in-lapse. There's, there's a lot of concentration going on. The track around where the pit entry was was very busy. There was a lot of traffic there. Um, and, you know, it, it was, I think, a lack of persistent communication to Frank. He just he just slipped past the entry and, uh, and uh, well, you know, he lost his opportunity to come into the pits. All happened so quickly, I suppose. Benefit of hindsight, he could have then 
pulled in and the emergency rode in would have had to accept a penalty, but he would have still been in the race. It was just one of those unfortunate circumstances. And um, we were out of the race. And um, yeah, I mean, it was a ah, crikey, a big shock to the system because yeah. that's what we planned. Sebring, Le Mans. That was Le Mans, our, our, last, our last race, our, our big effort. And it was gone. And, um, I'm, I'm interested to hear you say, David, that, uh, that you, you bought the car. Uh, mm. to run that uh, you know I'm, I'm surprised that those weren't sort of licensed to you or did did Audi have much of an input from Germany yes they did the the, the deal was we bought we bought the chassis and then we had a, a, a sort of a technology package which um, which was a I suppose a lease or a rental agreement we paid so much for the use of engines now the engines were managed completely by Boretsky's team in Audi Sport. So that came with an engine which was um, run to its life and then rebuilt or exchanged with a new engine. We also had a chassis engineer, an engine engineer, um, and a, a handful of other technicians to support the UK technicians. So it was it was in many ways a joint effort. We had a lot of regular factory input um but we ran the car ourselves if you like from the from the uk team that we appointed they had management control of the team so and and there were also two other privateers that year because the factory had put their their as you had said their emphasis behind the bentley program but there was also the the champion car and the and the go uh, and the go car yep yeah indeed yep so I suppose they they were our true benchmarks. We, you know, we we would have liked to have, have done something about the Bentleys, but their pace was very good. Um, they had the resources of Yoast, as um, as Joe mentioned earlier. Many of the, uh, the 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 pit crew that we'd become familiar with in Audi gear over the last few years were now in green Bentley gear. <laughs> so um, the, there was a lot of a lot of 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 personnel from the Audi team supporting the Bentley effort or running the Bentley effort, um, I, I would suggest that the car was really quite different. It was it was developed by the same team at RTM in Norfolk, which is a subsidiary company of Audi's, but it was very much to Bentley's requirements to and and obviously with their with their budgets. But um, we had pretty much autonomy with our team in Audi UK. Um, and, um, of course, Dr. Ulrich was a regular visitor. Uh, he might have had to change his uh, jacket when he wandered up, but uh, <laughs> he, he kept a very close eye on us. And um, hopefully for most of the time, at least up until um, hour two, he was uh, pleased with what he saw. Mm. I tell you what, David, it, it, I think at that time we at Radio Le Mans all felt like we were part of that family. Uh, because you had always been a massive supporter of what we did at Radio Le Mans. In fact, we all had Audis to drive, thanks to yourself, to and from the track. We were big supporters of of, of Audi, and especially Audi UK. When you guys came into the race, you were our team. Yeah. We were part of your team. So when we was we were we were as depressed as you guys were when that happened, and you know. I've been around motorsport and I've run teams and I've raced and I know how just gut wrenching that can be 
Um, and it was Hugh Chamberlain who said, when's the best time to fall out of an endurance race, a 24-hour race? And he always said the best time was before the bars closed. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and that, that is the only commiseration I can yes. give you guys in that year, that you were able to hit the bar. Um, it was just tragic. It was just not right. But it made oh, you determined to come back and, and yeah. have a crack. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, Jim, you, um, you, you have mentioned in the past that that particular event brought about a story which, uh, which involves Mr. Ingram. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I apologize for laughing the way I did, but because whenever anyone um, talks about that event, the famous line, Frank Bila, what went wrong, uh, pops <laughs> into my head. And this is one of those behind-the-scenes stories that um, – it's 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 fun to share. Um, so Frank has uh, the car has dropped out, and we we've gotten word at Radio Lama that shortly uh, David will be bringing uh, Frank by for an interview. And in the in the meantime, uh, our colleague Alan Hyde was in the uh, studio. This was back when we did we had a studio, and then we had uh, John Hindoff, and and I think John and I were actually up in the up in the Tribune above the above the facility um, and Alan Hyde and uh, Neville Hay were in the, uh, were in the studio and that's where interview uh, people would be brought was into the studio. And uh, shortly after we'd received word that David was on his way to uh, um, bring uh, Frank over uh, someone from Michelin showed up and um, plopped down in the chair next to Neville and um, Neville starts to go through this thing of, well, you know, in motorsport, there are times when things go well and things go bad. In the meantime, Alan Hyde is on the talk back to Hindoff going, Hindy, Hindy, it's not Frank. What do I do? It's some guy from Michelin. And, and Neville doesn't realize it. What do I do? And about that point, Neville had finished his soliloquy and said to said to the uh, poor Michelin guy, Frank Bila, what went wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and and the poor guy from Michelin kind of stumbled out an answer, and you know we took over from the Tribune and everything else. So for about two years after that, every time we would see Frank. One of us would go, Frank Vila, what went wrong? And we'd all snicker and ha-ha and, and, and be schoolboys. And um, finally, and this would carry on, this carried on over to the American Le Mans series where Frank was a, was a regular competitor in the Audi USA efforts and that sort of stuff in the American Le Mans series. So finally, one evening in a, in a, in a, in a drinking establishment, um, Frank cornered me and he goes, Jim, what is this Frank Vila, what went wrong thing? All you guys, you all look at me and go, Frank Beeler, what went wrong? Ha, ha, ha. And I, and I relayed the story to him, and he laughed and laughed. He loved the story. And from that day on, anytime he'd see, see us, he'd go, Frank Beeler, what went wrong? <laughs> <laughs> that, is a, that is a great story. I, I, I love that. That's superb. Obviously, we, we, uh, we can look forward. I know this is the... Historic Racing News Radio Show, but we can look forward as well as back. And that Le Mans seems well-placed in a fairly uncertain world, uh, 
as far as the future is concerned. David, do you do you still have a passion for Le Mans? I do, yeah, very much so. I, I just I when I turn up at the circuit, you know, I just get this frisson of excitement. You know, it's, I'm back at Le Mans, um, <clears throat> and the, I've been in some sort of fairly lean years as far as entrance is concerned, and and um, spectators in in some years, as some during the mid nineties, it was it was much less well attended than it has been of late. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't know whether I can go this year. I hope I will be able to. It just make you know ensuring that I don't get quarantined or locked up anywhere. Um, but last year was the first I'd missed since '82, uh, and I, you know, in normal circumstances, I can't envisage missing it. I think the prospects on the outside um, looking in are, are exciting. Audi are coming back, Porsche are coming back, Ferrari are coming back. I mean, what's not to like? Jim, what what, what do you think Le Mans is going to look like in five or ten years' time? Oh, hmm. well, um, in ten years' time, it'll be a, probably an electric race um, because that'll put us into the 2030s and most of the governments are trying to push auto manufacturers to electricity. So I suspect it's going to be... It's going to be a short race, Jim. It sure (laughs) is. Or you're going to have to have two cars and change them over and, you know. But if you want to talk about proving a uh, concept, proving a concept, that would be if you can can get an electric car to compete for 24 hours, you will have... uh, You will. You really will have uh, proven proven the concept. Mm-hmm. Having said that, um, I am I am very excited about the hypercar uh, and the LD LHD or LDH cars um, because we're again pointing towards a common formula. Um, the hypercars will provide, as David said, the manufacturers who want to play on the biggest stage the opportunity to do so. The LDH cars that race here in the United States, um, they will, I guess, probably become de facto what is today the LMP2 cars, and they will fill out the field and they will provide in the lean times of the manufacturer involvement because we all know, we've all been doing this long enough, that the excitement of 2021, let's see what that excitement is like in 2024 or 2025 when the three-year marketing cycles and the four-year plan and all of that has run its course and some bean counter at Ferrari says, well, we don't want to do this anymore. Um, You're still going to have to have the base, and that base is in that common formula because those cars can race at Le Mans, they can race in the United States, and it becomes very easy to put together a program that will allow you to race uh, as opposed to just put a program together and, and go and complete. You know, it's like Glickenhaus is trying to do the, the hypercar. Well, that is probably – that's a Sisyphus kind of uh, deal for him as far as I'm concerned. I, I in, in my biggest hope is that he pulls it off. But if you want to talk about this, is almost um, uh, Jean Rondeau territory. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. you know, uh, if he pulls it off, it'll be a Lowe's and Fishes class miracle. Yeah. And um, <laughs> uh, but but 
But I think the base, the, the, the foundation of what the organizers are laying speaks well to the long term. The next decade of Le Mans should be pretty solid because of some of the decisions that been, have been made there. After 10 years, whoo, only the Lord knows. Well, we'll just go to the um, classic Le Mans after that. Yes, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll be classics <laughs> ourselves. <laughs> we've we've obviously gone full circle in in this uh, in this short chat because we started with the thoughts that the guys in the Bentleys and uh, the Chennai Welcare and, and and those kind of cars were were heroes. They were they were some in some cases uh, not not what we would now talk about as being politically correct but nonetheless they were heroes out there doing the daring d daring do and that what we've seen i think probably particularly over the last 15 20 years is that lamar has repeatedly changed its image and that is is changing once again and joe that do you think that we can see Le Mans staying relevant in terms of that? I know, I know Jim said oh. about an electric event. Yeah, I, I, I think the SEO have shown over the years that they are adaptable and flexible enough to move with the times. And I think we're on the verge of seeing another halcyon period, uh, the like of which we've just uh, been talking about. And you know what? A, a big round of applause to Toyota. They stayed with it. And it's thanks to them that the program, you know, bringing in the likes of Fernando Alonso to appeal to a broader public. Um, and, it, you know, you, you can't knock it. However, it hasn't exactly been a golden period. It's been it's, – and sports car racing, if you look down through the ages, has this cycle. It, it goes yeah. through a doldrum and then it picks up and it be, you go through those periods – of what we've just described, the Group C, the the Audi time, the the hybrids. Um, I think with the hypercar, I think with the I'm not I'm not as pessimistic as Jim. I know he didn't want to be pessimistic as being all electric by the decade. I think there are a lot of things on the horizon. There's synthetic petrol. Um, there are uh, hydrogen. There's there's lots of. Uh, uh, alternative fueling ideas that are, are, are on the verge of, of raising their head. And Le Mans has always been the test bed for that. You know, this is where disc brakes came about. This is, you know, go down through the edges. You can see, you know, four-wheel brakes were an innovative thing that first appeared at Le Mans. Um, I think in the next, certainly the next five years, with all these manufacturers coming on board, we're about, you know, strap yourself in. It's going to be a wonderful five years to just soak up and in 20 or 30 years we'll be talking about the next five years as a halcyon period that's what i think uh, and you I, might be I, in 30 I, years yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, perhaps, that was yeah. pessimistic yeah <laughs> just lift thanks thanks for lifting the mood paul <laughs> but uh i'm Obviously, yeah, we could we could sit and talk about Le Mans um, for hours and hours and hours, but it is a it, it is a way of life, and I would like to thank Jim Roller and Joe Bradley as my uh, my regular co-hosts for that. But particularly, I'd like to thank David Ingram. Um, David, would it be fair to say that Le Mans has changed your life? Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah, and for the better. <laughs> 
Well, I would say so. My wife might not agree, but uh, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've you know I've met many friends there. I, I'd, sometimes I'd feel I'd go down to Le Mans. I'd know more people there amongst the paddock, amongst the environments, than I than I would back home in the office. It, it's it's a community. Um, it's it's quite a weird thing, I suppose. Motorsport is like that, like a um, bunch of travellers just wandering around, turning up at race meetings. But I just love the experience of it. I love the feeling of it. Um, it gives, gives me a great buzz. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And we'd love, love to have you come back and uh, and give us the pearls of wisdom on, on another occasion as well. And I hope you'll, uh, you'll do that. Thank you all, gentlemen, for that, for this Insider Special edition of the Historic Racing News radio show. That's it. From me, Paul Tarsi, and all the team, as always, if you have been... Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.